This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. Well, where have we come from? Let me back up here. In the life of our church in September, we started a journey. Basically, from the age of uh, four and up, everybody who comes through the door on a uh, Sunday morning is studying the same passage of Scripture. For, For years, our kids have been doing a curriculum here called the Gospel Project, which takes kids through the Bible with an eye to Jesus. In light of what Jesus said in Luke 24 and John 5, where he says, the Old Testament's ultimately about me. This Gospel Project curriculum teaches kids how to do that. How do you find Christ in all of these passages? So, in September, we started a church-wide journey, starting in Genesis 1, and we are methodically making our way through the Scriptures together. Uh, At the end of the, the fall session, we had covered the book of Genesis. Genesis covers a very wide swath of time in just one book. Thousands of years of human history are covered in the book of Genesis. We come to Exodus and the pace slows down. Exodus through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy cover one lifespan. In comparison to Genesis, it's striking. Now, Genesis, if you, can, if you can remember the main characters of the Genesis story, you can tell the story of Genesis. Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. You have those names down. You can tell, retell the story of Genesis. Now, where did we leave off? Uh, last fall, um, you'll recall Joseph had been betrayed by his brothers, sold as a slave into Egypt, where he spent uh, the bulk of his um, adult years. Uh, there was a severe famine that struck the land of Canaan where Joseph's family was living. But under Joseph's leadership, uh, Egypt had stockpiled enough resources to withstand that. Joseph's father, Jacob, whose name had been changed to Israel, sent his sons to Egypt to ask for food and water so that they too would be able to withstand this famine. And who is it they appear before to plead for food and water? Joseph himself. And in kind of an elaborate series of events, Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers He forgives them, and not just forgives them, but he makes a home for them in Egypt. So all of Joseph's brothers, there's 12 sons of Israel, 12 sons of Israel, their wives, their children, they all move to Egypt, and they live out their days there. Now, there's a time gap that exists between Genesis and Exodus. By the time we pick up the story, Israel has gone from being a name of a man to a name of a very populous people group, up to two million perhaps, living in Egypt. The king that's in power in Egypt at the time is threatened by their numbers, and he begins to oppress them. Um, He uh, employs the help of Hebrew midwives instructing them to kill newborn Israelites, but they don't comply. So he charges the Egyptian population at large to throw any newborn Israelite, newborn Israelite boy into the Nile. 
In chapter 2, a man by the name of Moses is born to a Jewish family. For three months, his mother hid him, at which point she made him a wicker basket, literally the word ark, same word used to describe Noah's ark. She put him in this ark and floated him along the Nile River. Um, at which point, uh, the king's uh, daughter sees him, takes him in, and uh, begins to raise him as, uh, as her own. Okay? So we're going to be picking up the story in Exodus chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. If you have a smartphone tablet, that's fine. Exodus 3. And we're going to pick up the story. It's fast-forwarding in time here. Moses is now an adult, and I'll fill in some of the backstory behind that as we work our way through uh, the text in front of us. Let me read Exodus chapter 3, 1 to 14. And Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you. This will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Moses' experience here is nothing short of a spiritual awakening. We're going to consider that topic from this text under three headings. We're going to look at the setting for a spiritual awakening, the substance of a spiritual awakening, and the summons included in a spiritual awakening. The setting for it, the substance of it, the summons included in it. First, the setting for a spiritual awakening. You could say that Moses' life had taken a massive detour. Though his biological parents were Israelites, he was raised in an Egyptian home. Moses grew up in royalty. The king's daughter raised him. He likely grew up in privilege. Imagine what his career path looked like. Imagine where his life trajectory was headed until that fateful day when he intervened to save a Hebrew life by killing an Egyptian life. That event changed Moses' life forever. That sent him fleeing permanently away from the place he knew as home. 
So when chapter 3 begins, instead of living in a palace in Egypt, he's actually hundreds of miles away from home tending a pasture of sheep. So it's not hard to imagine Moses thinking to himself, how did I get here? He likely thought he was not where he was supposed to be. It had taken an unpleasant detour. This creates the setting for God to awaken Moses to a spiritual reality he was not aware of before. It's worth pausing to reflect on that. Let me ask you something. Five years ago, ten years ago, what was your vision for your life? Fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, what was your vision for your life? What did you think your life would be like in January 2018? Are you right now where you thought you would be? Or are you on a detour? This detour in Moses' life is the setting for a spiritual awakening. And it changes his life forever. Now, there's something else about Moses' detour that's worth noting. How long was he on it? How long was this detour? We get impatient with a few miles when someone reroutes us out on the the roads. Acts chapter 7 verse 30 says that the time between Moses fleeing Egypt and this moment when God appears to him is 40 years. Who's got the patience for that? A 40-year detour. Now, what's he been doing these 40 years? He's been a shepherd for someone else's flock. Think about what Moses was raised to do. He's raised in royalty. A shepherd was not a part of his long-term vocational goals. So what is God up to during these 40 years? What is God up to? Well, consider the role Moses was about to play. He was about to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, lead them through their journeys in the wilderness, lead them to the outskirts of the promised land. At the time Moses is tending to this flock of sheep, God is preparing him to be a shepherd of people. The detour itself is part of God's preparation for the next chapter in his life. The detour itself is preparing Moses for the next thing God had for him. So look, maybe five years ago, 10 years ago, 15, 20, 40 years ago, you didn't think you'd be where you are today. Maybe you didn't think you'd be where you are today. I want you to find encouragement from this story. Every detail of Moses' life has been orchestrated by in a good God. Every detail has been orchestrated by a good God. It's not a waste. God's not been caught off guard by all that transpired in Moses' life. Everything is there for a reason. It's setting the stage for a spiritual awakening in Moses' life that radically, radically changes this man. Now, there's one more observation uh, to make from this text concerning the setting for a spiritual awakening. While Moses is tending the flock, doing the job he once thought he'd never do, while he's on this detour, he actually has a mini detour. He's got a mini detour within the bigger detour. He sees a bush on fire, but not burning up. 
Okay? Verses 2 and 3, the repetition of this bush on fire not burning up is meant to cause the reader to pause and reflect. Verse 3, Moses says, I will go over and see this strange sight. So he's talking out loud to himself, which is usually significant in Hebrew narrative. This is a mini detour within a big detour. And the nature of this mini detour is what? It's something strange. It's something inexplicable. It's something that, that logic says can't happen. That, doesn't, that does not fit. That does not fit with the way I understand the world to work. A bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. Logic says that doesn't happen. So Moses sees something that doesn't fit his current model of reality. The setting for this spiritual awakening occurs within the context of an event that causes Moses to have to rethink his model of reality. Now, I really do think many of us give but a fleeting glance towards burning bushes in the rhythms of our weekly lives. But on the whole, we're unwilling to go out of our daily routines, meditate, read, think, and reflect on these things. We keep our heads down and we say to ourselves, I've got work to do. I've got sheep to tend to. I can't bother myself with this paradigm buster over here. I have got work to do. I've got to stay focused on what's in front of me. But when Moses sees the burning bush, he doesn't say to himself that. He doesn't say, I've got, I've got a job to do. I've got sheep to take care of. He disrupts his daily routine. He disrupts it to explore, to investigate, to go down a rabbit trail. Maybe God has you on a detour. You didn't think five years ago, 10 years ago, you would be where you are today. Within this detour, have you taken any mini detours? Have you been confronted with something that doesn't fit your current model of reality? Have you disrupted your daily routine to explore? To explore anything that doesn't fit your current model of reality. This is the setting for a spiritual awakening. Second, the substance of a spiritual awakening. The elephant in the room is this whole idea of fire. That's the big thing that kind of, the, the kids, I guarantee you, when you ask the kids today, what did you learn about? They're going to tell you about the bush that was on fire but didn't burn up. That's what they're going to tell you about. Why does God use fire as the substance of this spiritual awakening? God, as fire, occurs often in the scriptures. In Israel's journey through the wilderness, God directed them by night with a pillar of fire. In Exodus 19, God descended on, uh, in fire at Sinai to meet with Israel and reveal his law to them. 1 Kings 19, it ascended on Sinai again, this time to meet with Elijah. Deuteronomy 4.24 actually says, God is a consuming fire. It's reiterated in the book of Hebrews. God's presence is frequently attached to fire, but why? Why is God's presence so often linked with fire? Well, let's think about fire for a minute. We love fire. We spend money to bring fire into our homes. Wood burning, gas fireplace, a staple in most homes today. We spend good money to bring fire into our homes. Last time you were at a campfire, you remember that? Last time you were at a campfire, did you ever, did you find yourself sitting around the campfire staring at it? Huh? Dazzled by its mesmerizing appeal? On the one hand, fire draws you in. 
It captivates you. But it's also lethal. It's dangerous. So it draws you in, but it keeps you at a distance simultaneously. God is saying something about his own nature. He possesses a beauty on the one hand that dazzles us, that draws us in, but he possesses a lethalness that forces us to keep a safe distance. We try to push this a little further. In ancient cultures, the five basic elements are fire, wind, water, metal, earth. Let's take a couple of those. Compare fire with water. Put your hand in water, and what, what can you do to it? You can move it around. You can disperse it, right? You can manipulate it. Take earth or clay, right? Same thing, right? You can manipulate it. You can form it. Water and clay are shaped by the toucher. Put your hand in fire. Put your hand in fire, you're going to find out something, right? The toucher can't shape the fire. Fire shapes the toucher. Fire is unyielding. It doesn't bend to your will. You can't manipulate it. You can't control it. You can't form it. It manipulates you. It controls you. It forms you. Just a few verses later, God says to Moses, I am who I am. God doesn't say, okay, I am whatever you want me to be. He doesn't say, I am however you'd like to think of me. He doesn't say, I'll be whatever you want me to be. No, God is saying to him, I am fire. I am who I am. I am fire. You can't conform me to your wishes. You can't shape me into what, how you like to think of me. That would make you fire. You're not fire. I'm fire. I shape, I form, I am who I am. Here's my question to you. Is that your view of God? In daily practice, is God fire or are you? Blaise Pascal was a famous mathematician and philosopher. <clears throat> when he died, they, um, they discovered a document that he had sewn into the lining of his coat. And the document describes an event that happened in his life. And this is, this is what's written on this document. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd of November... From half past 10 in the evening to half past 12. Fire. One line, all capital letters. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ. What happened to him? Did Pascal not believe in God before? No. He already believed in God. But God wasn't a fire to him. God became a living reality to him. God revealing himself this way to Moses is the substance of a spiritual awakening. God wasn't a fire to him before. He was an idea, a concept. In order for you to have a spiritual awakening, God has to become more mesmerizing to you than he is now. Like at a campfire, you have to be able to stare at him for long stretches of time without getting bored. 
And he has to become more lethal to you than he is now. He has to become fire. Now, how does that happen? Well, on the one hand, you can't just bend God's arm to make him give you this experience. Remember, he's fire. We're not. You can't control him. But you can ask. God, you are an idea to me. You're a concept to me. But you're not fire. I plead with you to show me your fire. Like you did for Moses. Surprise me on my detour. Send a paradigm buster into my life. On the other hand, God has sent fire into our world that is paradoxically both beautiful and attractive and dangerously lethal and scary. See, God is beautifully and attractively loving and dangerously and lethally holy. He's loving and he's holy. It's a paradox. This is a biblical view of God. It's counterintuitive. And God has sent this vividly into our world through the death of Jesus Christ. See, the cross is the ultimate burning bush. It's the ultimate burning bush. It's a fire. It's both beautiful and attractive and dangerously lethal and scary. The cross of Christ is the place where God's love and holiness meet. They intersect. The cross shows us that God is simultaneously holy with zero tolerance for evil and wrongdoing, but burning with a passionate love that refuses to stop pursuing us until he's brought us into his family as sons and daughters. Folks, this is why, this is why the gospel needs to be central to everything we do here at Alliance Bible Church. What we need, what you need, what I need is not a list of how-tos. What you need is not primarily a sermon on five ways to be a better spouse, parent, or friend. What you need is for God to become fire to you. And the only way I know how to do that is to present before your senses each week the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only way I know how to do that is to continually present Jesus before you. See, what happened in Pascal's life wasn't merely cognitive. It was sensed deeply on the heart. Deeply on the heart. Ask God to give you that sense. And proactively look for it by sitting for prolonged periods of time at the foot of the cross. Third, the summons included in a spiritual awakening When God becomes fire to you, beware. When God becomes fire to you, beware. He will not leave you alone. He's going to call you to do something. And don't expect him to give you an assignment that's comfortable. After God becomes fire to Moses, God tells him about this little operation he wants him to lead. To confront the ruler of the Egyptian empire. Tell him to let the people go and threaten him with nasty stuff if he doesn't comply. Well, Moses has all sorts of trouble with this assignment. Who am I that I should do this? What if the people of Israel don't believe me? I don't speak so good. All this is going to be a problem. Look at it, chapter 3. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. <laughs> I get a kick out of God's response to him here. God doesn't say, well, oh, you know what, Moses, you're right. I don't know what I was thinking in activating you for this mission. 
I'll go find someone else. God doesn't say, Moses, you're mistaken about your skills and abilities. You're actually a perfect fit for this mission. God says, I will be with you. (laughs) God doesn't say Moses was wrong to ask the question, who am I? This is actually the right question. And the response, God will be with you. Now, to the naked eye, maybe Moses is all wrong for the position. But God works this way. He puts wrong people in these kinds of positions all the time. Those for whom God has become fire. To be honest, I think the tremendously talented steal glory from God. The main character of the universe's story is God. It's not us. God loves to put Moseses in these types of roles because there can be no mistaking who it is we have to thank for the result. There's a video clip out there online of two cyclists. Uh, One is a world-class championship cyclist and the other is an amateur weekend warrior uh, type. And here's what they did. They gave the world-class guy a $200 cheap bike. And he was racing against this amateur who they had given this super tricked out, souped up $15,000 Tour de France bike. And, and they're racing around the oval. And, and as I'm watching this, I'm picturing all the serious amateur bicyclists thinking to themselves, oh, I hope it's the bike. I hope it's the bike. I hope it's the bike. Please let it be the bike. Well, it made a difference. <laughs> but the world-class guy still beat the amateur guy, even though they had switched bikes. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, wow, that's, that guy's really good. If you picture it. If you were watching the Tour de France... And you saw the first guy come in, and the winner had a basket on the front of his bike, a little bell, and a baseball card stuck in the, in the spokes. What would you think? You would think, wow, he won on that? That guy's amazing. This is what God does in activating Moses for the mission. This is what God does with us. He gets glory. He gets glory. He gets glory. When he uses people like us. God oftentimes doesn't summon the talented. He doesn't summon the high capacity to influence. He summons those who are living through an unexpected detour. He summons those for whom God is sensed on the heart as fire. Every hour I spent bathing in this text from Exodus 3, I became increasingly convicted by something. The people used most powerfully and influentially are those for whom God is sensed as fire and who routinely ask the question, who am I? I became increasingly convicted by that. The, The most usable in the hands of God are those for whom God is sensed on the heart as fire and who routinely ask the question, who am I? At some point, maybe we've all entertained ideas of doing big things for God. I think that's the wrong goal. I think it's the wrong goal. 
our goal as individuals, as a church, needs to be that God is sensed on our hearts as fire and that we routinely ask ourselves the question, who am I? Only then will we be usable. Let's pray. Almighty, all-powerful, all-loving God, make yourself known to us as more than idea. Land on our senses as fire, a living reality. God, you are holy with zero tolerance for evil, and yet you're loving, stopping at no end to adopt us as your sons and daughters. Ignite our desire to meditate and explore and ponder the kind of God you really are. So that through that you would shape us and form us and fashion us. God, I pray that you would remind us that life's detours are ideal settings for you to awaken us spiritually. Many of us are discouraged right now by our detours. We're hurting, we're frustrated, filled with questions as to why we're on this detour. Pray, Lord, that you would bury this text deep into us. You would show us it's precisely in those moments of questioning where you are oftentimes most active in giving us something that's more valuable than pleasant life circumstances, and that is a spiritual awakening where you are sensed on the heart as fire. I want to respond to this in song by declaring corporately the kind of God you are. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.